0: Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 Billion Fulfilled People, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Moshe Schiff. Dr. Schiff is a pioneer in the field of epigenetics, the study of how living things reprogram their genome in response to social factors like stress and lack of food. His research suggests that biochemical signals passed from mothers to offspring Tell the child what kind of world they're going to live in, changing the expression of, these, of their genes. Moshe says that DNA isn't just a sequence of letters, it's not just a script. DNA is a dynamic movie in which our experiences are being written. Schiff's lab has proposed three decades ago that DNA th- methylation, is that the word? I, 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 try, to, I try to write it phonetically oh, sure. for me, I'm dyslexic, yeah, yeah. is a prime therapeutic target in cancer and other diseases, and has postulated and provided the first set of evidence that social environment early in life can alter our DNA methylation, launching the emerging field of social epigenetics. Thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to this one. Cool. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, there were so many different studies and case studies and both on animal ones and human case studies and I'm maybe going to pick your brains about some of those over the course of this interview but maybe to start off your colleague Steven Sumi um has been rearing monkeys in two separate ways right. can you maybe just dis- describe some of those experiments right so uh,
1: steve has been doing this work for you know half a century uh, rearing uh, rhesus monkeys with a mother the biological mother or under really excellent conditions but with a nurse and a surrogate uh, mother essentially they're provided with some cotton wool that uh, you know kind of recapitulate the mother's touch and uh, excellent uh, care but nevertheless uh, when these uh, monkeys grow there are huge differences in the phenotype between the monkeys that were reared by their biological mothers and those that were reared in the nursery. And these differences span both the mind and the body. They have behavioral differences, as well as body differences, cardiovascular differences, metabolic differences. And so it's it's actually amazing that something so ephemeral, so social, uh, like uh, the presence of a mother, can have such a huge physical impact. No, sorry. Continue, please. Yeah, yeah. And and so you know, when I met Steve, I thought this is a fantastic model to address the question of how the world talks to our genes, and how is there a dialogue between the world and the genes? Uh, Genetics uh, used to think that we're born with certain genes, and they kind of determine everything that will happen. And that only the slow process of natural selection proposed by Darwin is the one that will select uh, adaptive uh, traits, as if the DNA is just sitting there as a sitting duck, waiting to be killed till one successful DNA will survive. It's a very static relationship between the world and DNA that we thought exists. But these kind of studies suggest that there is a dynamic dialogue. Between the DNA and and the world, and that dialogue doesn't stop in physical things. Uh, it it includes everything that we have in our environment, which is also our mothers and uh, other social uh, elements in
0: our life. Okay, so we're talking about with the two groups. There there are differences, but we, where do we? I mean, I don't want to use the the word sort of negative, but How do those differences in particular compare? So say, for example, one had the nurturing of their natural biological mother. The other group didn't. We've got these differences, but I'm I'm guessing the one with the the mother and that that relationship, they they had much more, I think, quote unquote, positive attributes. What were those specific differences? I would not
1: define them by positive or negative. I would say they're different and So what I think is going on here is that the animal is sensing through the signals, through the cues from the mother, uh, what kind of world they're going to live in. Is it going to be a very pleasant world where food is abundant, uh, where you don't have to uh, anticipate uh, social challenges, uh, where the physical environment is good? Uh, You have to develop a certain phenotype.
0: Um, by, ph- sorry, by, ph- by phenotype, so quickly, just to example, jump in, we mean characteristics, don't we? You have to be less stressed. Being stressed in a good world
1: is, 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 is co- going to cause you damage and damage to your health. For example, if there's a lot of food, there's no reason to binge. Your next meal is going to come. Uh, if there's a lot of food, there's no reason to store the food as fat. You can actually burn it. So you can see how both the cardiovascular metabolic characteristics as well as the mental characteristics are shaped by that experience Uh, if you're going to And let's let's talk about humans You know if you're going to live in slums and there's going to be drug wars uh, being anxious will save your life If you're going to be born in a concentration camp where you will get one meal every month Binging will save your life Storing food as fat will save your life So the mother is telling the pup this is going to be a rough world, baby, or is it going to be a very good world? When do we get into trouble when there's a misfit between these signals and what happens later? So if you're born in a concentration camp and then you become rich and, and you have access to calories, the binging phenotype is going to cause you trouble. Um, and, and the opposite, if you're born in a very, very um, uh, pleasant upper-class kind of environment and you're thrown into the jungle, you would not know what to do there. So there is no good or bad. I think our genome is talking to our mothers and trying to adapt itself to the kind of signals that are coming. And uh, trouble only happens when there is a misfit between the early environment and the
0: later environment. It's so interesting. I and mean, one, one thing was, I mean, you kind of referenced it at the beginning about our idea of, you know, that maybe this traditional idea of, you know, our DNA is almost like a fixed, static thing. But actually, you, you, you described how our DNA is really combined of combined of two components, two two layers of information. On the one hand, we have this old, evolved for millions of years of evolution, fixed, very hard to change layer of information. But what's the really interesting bit is this um, this other layer of information. It's it's open, it's dynamic, and it allows us to change. And I guess you could say like control our destiny.
1: Right. And this balance between fixed, between conservative elements and revolutionary elements, the right balance, uh, make us survive in this world. Uh, We need the fixed elements. For example, you don't want the epigenome uh, to completely change us. Uh, On the other hand, uh, you need to open it enough that the changes that happen around us will be registered. Sticking with this ultra conservative genome will lead us to tragedy. Uh, on the other hand, an ultra dynamic uh, genome can also lead us to tragedy. And actually, if you think about it, this concept of a balance between conservatism and radicalism uh, is true for all aspects of life. And when we find this right balance, we do extremely well. If we get lost in one end, it becomes destructive.
0: Having this idea of sort of controlled uh, medical studies, I guess, um, that, you know, you wouldn't think there'd be so many case studies with regards to humans. But actually, an example where a stressful environment early in life physically changes the DNA it can be quite illuminated quite nicely in the ice storm of Quebec in 1998. Right. What, what was that study and what did that maybe tell us? Right. The problem with humans, of course, is we cannot randomize child abuse.
1: And so, if a child was abused, and let's say he developed these characteristics we're talking about, being stressful, being uh, uh, hyper-vigilant, being uh, obese, and all these uh, phenotypes, it's very hard to assign them to the child abuse. The other thing is, why was he abused? Uh, So the geneticist will say, perhaps his parents had this abusive kind of gene that caused the child abuse and that gene also caused the other troubles so in humans it's very hard to dissociate the genetics from the epigenetics because we cannot actually do experiments uh, ethically but sometimes god does experiments and when a natural disaster hits it's randomized uh, the ice storm of 98 hit the province of quebec essentially shut down the electric grid line in a province that is heavily dependent on electricity for heating in the dead of the Canadian winter. So you can imagine that it was extremely stressful. But Since Quebec is a very sophisticated society, everybody found a way to a heated environment, but it wasn't their heated environment, which means that there was stress associated with it. And since it's random, We now can ask the question, what happened to women who were pregnant during this time? What happened to their children? Because there was nothing in their gene that defined that they will be exposed to more or less stress during that uh, period of time. And the other beauty of it is that we could have an objective measure of stress because we can, for example, count uh, how long they didn't have electricity uh, what what kind of threats they faced. Um, so all of these could be established in a social ladder of stress that my colleague in Quebec, Suzanne King, uh, prepared. And so now we have a objective measure of stress that was randomized that happened early in life. And we can follow these kids and see what will happen. And, and they can be followed at two levels. One level is what, hap- what we call the phenotype. What happened to their characteristics? Will they develop a characteristics like we saw in the animals uh, as stress increases? And the other nice thing here is we had a whole gradient of stress. So it's not just, you know, moving the mother, which is kind of a binary level of stress, but the stress was um, was quantitative. So we can now ask the question, is there a linear relationship between the amount of stress of the mother and what happens to DNA later in the life of these kids? So when they were 15, we removed the DNA from their blood and we mapped their methylation state. And the beauty of the sequencing technologies today, why can't, the reason we can do it today, even though humans probably thought about this for thousands of years, is that we can map the state of epigenetic modification of DNA, base by base, at the highest resolution. So we can really answer the question, were there or not changes? We can also know which genes are affected and by, thus, by this make predictions as to, you know, what physiological characteristics will change. And so the, uh, the results were remarkable. I mean, there was an increased incidence in these kids of autism, uh, which is part of the social interaction. And you can easily start, if you think about this adaptive model that I talked about, stress uh, early life suggests that the social environment is quite harsh. And um, social interaction might be actually detrimental for you. And so the autistic spectrum is on the lower social interaction spectrum, which might be actually originally a protective kind of response to a very harsh social environment. And to make it clear, for example, if you're a rat that was licked by the mother and thinks that the world is a beautiful place, and then you are thrown out into the wild and walk straight in the mouth of a cat because you don't know that there are bad people around. And so, the uh, phenotype of autism might be on a on a natural, actually adaptive spectrum of maintaining controlling social interaction. So certain times, social interaction could cause you trouble. So you want to reduce social interaction. Then they had immune problems, and that also connected to. You know, usually stressful situation will involve a lot of injuries, a lot of fights, and uh, you need a hyperactive immune system. But a hyperactive immune system can also cause you trouble, like asthma. And so you see an increase in asthma in these kids, And then you see also problems with controlling sugar and with uh, obesity. So all these fit very well to what I t- told you. You know, the mother is sending them a signal. Oh, this is a really rough world. Look at this. We didn't even have, uh, you know, a place to to dwell in. We had to run away from our house. Uh, People are evil around you. Uh, The world is harsh. There's no food. Of course, this is not the signal, but this is what the biology is sensing. And now it's preparing the child to this world. And what happens now, he's born in Quebec in a very sophisticated, wealthy civilization. So all these traits are becoming useless. For the kind of world that, and that's where trouble starts happening. So, if we understand these processes, we probably can intervene early, identify those people who are at risk, and and, and provide a, and different signals that early, early enough in life that will tell the child, you know, it's not so bad out there. So you better get used to living in a rich, you know, peaceful society.
0: So, so th- would it be um, advisable if I guess if we're naturally anxious or stressed um, and fearful and scared, to try and not, you know, say say you have like a brand new a new a newborn child to try and not be like that, so anxious around them because of that susceptibility. To try and be in a in a good state, to try and be calm around this newborn child, just because we realise how 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 susceptible they are. Of course, but is it possible? I'm not sure because
1: you know, sure. we are anxious for a reason. And of course uh, our anx- anxiety level is naturally distributed, right? Some of us are much more anxious than others. And in many cases, if you start doing your research on, on your own, uh, you will discover that there might be a link like the one I described before, You know, something happened early in life that, that caused this anxiety. And now we know that it could have happened, you know, generations before. So we are passing those experiences. Uh, You know, I'm a Holocaust survivor, a son of a Holocaust survivor, right? So the Holocaust uh, is now becoming clear, had impact on these things like anxiety, uh, susceptibility to stress and other things. Uh, And I can imagine that that was a survival signal, uh, but it's irrelevant anymore. And uh, so, how do we get rid of it, right? How how do we get rid of the vestiges of past experiences when they're not useful anymore?
0: So, we'll say if you if you can be programmed, then on the flip side, you can be right. deprogrammed, reprogrammed. Right. So the idea
1: is that uh, so my 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 vision of it is that one day we will have good markers of risk early in life. You know, like today, the doctor is doing an Apgar score of the baby when it's born to to measure his physical, her physical, um, you know, uh, characteristics. Perhaps we can do a methylation mapping of the placenta and see if there are signals of ex- intensive stress, right? Of course, we can spend hours talking to the mother. Uh, usually it doesn't work very well, and nobody does that. Uh, so if we have a measure that is automatic, objective, um, we don't have to interfere with, with the lives of the mother, and, and that test without giving it any, you know, negative or positive kind of attributes by saying, you know, this kid is at risk. Uh, he needs that kid needs a enrichment intervention very early.
0: So when you said early, when you said early, you really mean after birth? Uh, yeah, right. If we, right.
1: Exactly. If we can find it immediately at birth, uh, then we can, uh, you know we can we can intervene very early we can help the family very early and focus our intervention because most people don't need it and today you know when we have ideas of new interventions we just apply to everybody and and it's not very effective because it's directed to the peoples that don't need it and um, and what we learned in medicine in general is personalization of treatment is extremely critical. Epigenetics will allow us to personalize not only physical but also mental and behavioral treatments And, and uh, you know, there are many things society can do to help kids who are in risk at risk. you know from very enriched Daycares that are you know, they are very expensive but if you target them to a small segment of society to design of neighborhoods that are at risk, you know with playgrounds and 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 parks and so there's a lot that we can do at many levels uh, to intervene and to focus the intervention in many cases our intervention happens too late when these things are programmed I, I don't think when i say too late it's not a deterministic too late it's just that these tricks don't work anymore we'll need other tricks so i believe you can reprogram a person all of his life or her life but it, but you you have to use different Things, you know, things that work on little kids are not going to work on adolescents And if we intervene with obesity when the kids are 16 17 or 25 It might be too late And so we capture the risk population and invest in that population And make an economic argument for that investment Not you know, that works much better than making a uh, philosophical argument Because we are you know we' are driven by reward system and for governments the reward system is money and and economic and you can easily make an economic argument an investment early in life will save enormous amount of money to society and will also save money it will bring will create a much more peaceful society because there's higher incidence in these people of crime addiction and other problems that that afflict everyone right? An, an addicted person that commits crime to get his drugs is not just damaging himself or his family, society at large. It costs enormous amount of money for policing, prisons, etc., etc. And so if we can focus on early life, focus on population that actually need intervention, and personalize the intervention so that it fits the, the problem, I think this is where we're going at, but all of this has to be accompanied by very good economic arguments.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, I was, was going to say. I mean, this is. I mean, obviously, this point I'm about to make is like hugely over oversimplifying it. But people being born into a world where they feel loved, they feel important, they feel like they matter, obviously grow up as very different people, and then they have children who also like who they make them feel loved and important and like they matter right. and you know i'm not I'm not saying that's just a blanket like fix everything solution but it, it's it it changes within a few generations it changes the whole the whole status quo um you know as opposed right. to people growing up feeling you know like you said you're talking about stress feeling like no one cares about them you know that grow they grow up as a very different person don't they
1: right right So, you know, in certain cases, in most cases, hopefully the family can take care of it. In other cases, society has to step in and out of defending itself, right? Uh, Because saying that if you have huge, uh, large segments of society that did not get this feeling, that don't feel uh, important, that don't feel that they have a role to play in this world, they are going to hurt you, not just them. And therefore, you better do something about it now. And I think, uh, you know, uh, work of Jim Heckman and other economists who, who realize that is extremely important in a in a capitalist society like ours uh, to make these arguments. These are not arguments about justice. These are arguments about it's good for you, um, and and it, it's going to save you money and trouble in the future. It's
0: it's, it's hard to argue, isn't it? Especially like you said, even when yeah. you when you bring out the the economic like angle as well. I mean, it's it it just. It, it is just—it's a very compelling argument. Um, one of one, one another fascinating um, sort of case studies, I guess, is um, the evidence which came from the study in Romania about transferring orphans from the stressful environment of an orphanage to loving, caring foster homes. What, what was what did that show? Uh, so I think it, it, this study showed two things. First of all,
1: that if you intervene very early, you can actually reverse the effects. Again, supporting this idea that these effects are not inherited. They're
0: created by experience. By intervene, you mean, so if a child is, I think, up to the age of two or two and a half, is able to be transferred to a loving, caring, supportive right. family versus staying in the orphanage, where it is obviously a very stressful environment. So if they can be transferred right. early enough, that's what. You, so that's the intervention you're talking about, right. is
1: it? Right. So if think if they're transferred early enough, it works. If they're transferred later, it doesn't work. So it actually illustrates these principles that we learn from animals in humans, how important it is to intervene very early. And and the other thing that it teaches us that none of us is really doomed. And this idea that uh, you know there's certain segments of society, whatever you do for them, it's not going to help anyway. So don't waste money or time on them uh, because they're cursed with their genes and and. And and that's how it's going to be. But on the other hand, if you don't intervene, that might be true. And so intervention can actually uh, tilt the balance between being doomed uh, to being successful.
0: Yeah, I love it. Your 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 work has a it has an is an has an optimistic theme through it. Um, and I, I feel like the way you address it and approach it is with this feeling of, of optimism. Why, why do you feel optimistic? Because of just what you're describing there, how this idea that no one's doomed, there's, there's hope for everyone? Yes,
1: yes. And I think, I, I think, you know, humanity, the history of humanities is the battle between determinism and, and optimism or between free will and predetermined, um, you know, fate. Um, to a large extent, you know, Greek societies were focused on the predetermined fate. And the idea of genetics in its extreme way it draws upon this, you know, uh, uh, history, uh, this 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 tradition of thinking. Uh, I think the Judeo-Christian tradition was more on freedom and choice, and the idea that we can change our destinies in spite of the curse of the genes uh, that we inherited. It's not an easy battle. It's not a simple battle. And there's recognition of deterministic elements, even among those who believe in freedom of choice. So, for example, if, you know, uh, if we're born with genes that make us short, we'll remain short, although we can expand, of course, our length. Uh, And if we have a disease uh, gene, you know, sometimes there's nothing we can do about it. But overall, the overwhelming evidence is that actually uh, biology tends to support the idea of free will. And the idea of choice and the idea of the value and the significance of choice. So the choices that we make today might affect not us, ourselves, not only our environment, but also environments in the future. So that's number one. Number two is the relationship between us and others and relationship between us and the world. So there is this concept in in Western thinking of individual rights. As if all that counts is us and that everything we decide will be the only ultimate important thing. And and again, this is true to a certain extent, but we learned that in biology, interactions are very important. So our decisions don't remain with us. They have an impact on others. And therefore, when we make decisions, we have to consider others. We can't just say it fits me or I think it's a great idea without caring about others. Implications that our decisions will have on our children. You know, we might entertain certain lifestyles. And for us, they might be great, but they might have negative impact on our children. And so the balance of what you can do versus the responsibilities that you have that limit uh, what you can do is a very important element, I think
0: now that we have hard science confirming just how crucial these early years in a child's life are, what would you like sort of teachers or parents, if they could just take away something from this conversation, what, what would you want to really leave them with?
1: I think it's quite obvious that what they're doing has immense consequences. When a father uh, disrespects the mother, that is registered in the DNA of the children. And so you know you fight with your wife and you can resolve that uh, probably within minutes but the consequences can last a generation and and that is putting a heavy burden on parents being a parent is not your right it's a duty and uh, we have to start thinking about it as like as such we talk so much about the right for parenthood i think it's the duty of parenthood that we should discuss. And that has a, a lot of implications, you know, we bring children to the world not to entertain us, uh, but we have responsibilities once we decided to do that. Uh, and epigenetics teaches us that even transient experiences, right, an experience that lasted a few minutes and uh, then disappeared, we think it's over, but it's, it might be registered. Uh, whether it's a social experience uh, or whether a physical experience uh, the kind of housing we build, the kind of environment the kind of air we expose our children to being a parent is an extremely responsible duty that lasts multiple generations
0: i think th- i think that idea of multiple generations and how something just yeah i, th- I think it, it's, it's such an interesting idea and um i i I know that you reference when you look at the wars we see you turn on the news and you see like sort of where one aggressive generation breeds another aggressive generation which breeds another aggressive generation and this idea of um our current method of trying to bomb our way to peace is clearly it's clearly not working and it's not the solution is it
1: No. no although aggression work works in you know natural selection right and I think Homo sapiens are the only hominid species because we essentially killed all the other hominoid species. And so it does work. The question is, is this the way you want it to work, right? And so, you know, once we realize that there's an alternative to aggression, there's an alternative to natural selection, which is a dynamic um, relationship, a dynamic dialogue uh, rather than, you know, killing everybody except the ones who survive. It's actually the fight between, you know, classic genetics and epigenetics, you know, between um, just a simple natural selection in its most brutal uh, form uh, to a dialogue and a dynamic uh, relationship uh, that is probably a much more sophisticated
0: way of advancing. What does a fulfilled life mean to you?
1: I think a fulfilled life is a life of dialogue and listening to yourself to others and to the world around you and out of this kind of dialogue figuring out uh, what you're best at and when we started the discussion we talked about you know good motherhood or bad motherhood and i said there's no good or bad motherhood the challenge in life is to identify your characteristics and adapt them to the and, and find the right environment for them and we are not doing that, right? Like we're, the way we're deterministic with with our genetic outlook, we're also deterministic with education. We provide one education for all, and realizing the you know the natural distribution of phenotypes uh, will require that you can be good at something and not good at something else. We don't agree with this, right? We want the Superman. We expect our presidents to be. Priests and managers, and perfect husbands and perfect fathers, uh, rather than looking at the strengths and, and saying, okay, this is the strength of that person, let's focus on it. And one can argue there is no person without strengths. And there is no strength that doesn't have a use or an environment or a niche where it can flourish. So the challenge in life is to listen to these things, to be attentive to the biological dialogue. And to take full advantage of it, and I think uh, this will make a fulfilling life. The opposite, when you try to be not yourself, when you t- to pr- try to be something else, and you find yourself in a completely
0: maladaptive environment, uh, you lose. Exactly. I mean, you and I mean, using the school example, like you could be extremely intelligent in some area, but if you, if, if there is only one school model, then you might have your whole childhood. Thinking that you're, 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 you're thinking you're an idiot, low no confidence because, you know, you don't fit into that one cookie cutter approach.
1: And the same with, you know, kinds of behaviors, right? We have a normal behavior. How dangerous is this concept, right? So essentially label everybody who doesn't behave according to so-called normal behavior as crazy or sick, rather than looking at a spectrum. As we started, I said, even autism, in my opinion, is part of the spectrum. And actually... So-called autistic children can be extremely successful in certain disciplines like music and mathematics and computer science. And so we see that, you know, we have a natural distribution of traits that creates a heterogeneity that we can all benefit from. But we try to equalize it, to have one standard that fits all. And computer forms are the worst enemy. Uh, of, of this concept of natural distribution, I cannot, you know, for me, filling a form is like a s- open surgery without anesthetics. You know, it causes so much pain because it forces me to give specific answers. Right, I have to scroll, and none of the above, none of these answers fit me, and so you keep struggling with with trying to fit into those boxes. Uh, in our university and all most universities professors are promoted because they excel in all three aspects of so-called university life, administration, teaching, and uh, and research. But I know people who are brilliant researchers, who are terrible teachers, and awful administrators. Actually, I know very few people who are good researchers and good administrators. It just doesn't exist. But the system will promote this illusionary kind of person who, who can do all of the three. And everybody's frustrated, right? Because if you're not an administrator and you're forced to do it, you're frustrated.
0: What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives? I think that listening to who they are,
1: trying to figure out who they are, and how can they take full advantage of who they are, and having respect to who they are, right? Don't. Don't erase your father and mother. Don't erase your history. Don't try to be somebody else. See who you are and then go from there and be successful.
0: Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? How can they maybe see your TED Talk or, yeah, find out more? Right. So the TED Talk,
1: I think, is a very good introduction.
0: You know, I actually, even though it was
1: only 17 minutes, I think I covered, you know, 40 years of research and and the basic elements of it. Of course, if you want to delve deeper into it, you just take my name and Google it. I'm the only person in the world that has this kind of combination of name. And, uh, and so uh, if you hit my name, you'll probably 99% of the hits will be my work. And, and I have works work at different levels, right? So, you know, for those aficionados who want to know the scientific details, they can find that and those who want to get a more general concept. Uh, can
0: find it. Mo, thank you so much for speaking to me today.